and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. Glass is one of the most durable and versatile materials in all of the decorative arts, and uh, one of the world's greatest collections of glass objects is at the Corning Museum of Glass in Corning, New York. Uh, I've wanted to do an episode with the museum for uh, a long time now, and uh, now I have a great opportunity. Their curator, uh, Christopher Kit Maxwell, has put together an exhibition and catalog called In Sparkling Company, Glass and the Costs of Social Life in Britain During the 1700s. Um, the exhibition opens on May 22nd and will run through the beginning of next year. Now, this is a little bit of an unusual exhibition, um, as you'd expect for a show at a prestigious institution, it does feature impressive and beautiful objects. But um, I think it's fair to say that what Maxwell has really tried to do with this show is to look beyond the objects themselves and into the lives of the people who made and sold and bought and used them. Um, and glass was such a ubiquitous material in um, the British economy that with a little research, it can reveal an awful lot about the desires and aspirations and, and values um, of of what was growing to be the most powerful nation in the world. Um, Kit, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ben. Pleased to be here. Now, I, I want to start with a very broad question. What does glass tell us um, that we might not learn from studying other kinds of, of decorative arts? Well, as you said, glass has has been ubiquitous in in human life for thousands of years, and I think in terms of studies of the decorative arts, it it's a somewhat siloed field. It it tends to be overlooked for the other arts of fire, ceramics, and metalwork, for example. But the developments in in glass making, I think, can tell us a huge amount about the preoccupation preoccupations, the the cultural preoccupations, the economic preoccupations of countries that were producing glass at any moment in time. And that is particularly true of Britain in the 18th century, which in fact was enjoying a, a, a uniquely glassy moment uh, at that time. Um, tell me more about that. What uh, what made the 18th, 18th century Britain a glassy place? Well, I'm glad you ask. Um, it's a, at the end of the, the 17th century, the British perfected uh, a new formula for glass it was a formula that comprised a large percentage, around 30%, in fact, of lead oxide. And this made the glass clearer, um, brighter, more refractive, stronger and heavier than glass had ever been before. And it, it was known as uh, lead crystal. And rock crystal had always been the benchmark or had long been the benchmark for glass making in Europe. And until that point, the Venetians had kind of dominated the market with their luxury soda soda lime um, wares and these were exported internationally all throughout Europe and, and into Asia um, but they were very very fragile which suited the Baroque and Renaissance and before that sensibilities very well but um, as we get closer to the, the 18th century uh, more robust wares seemed to be harmonizing with with design movements at the time so this new English lead crystal was was perfect for the moment and could be transported widely because it was robust and and strong. Right. And so was this opening up uh, glass wares to a broader swath of the population? It, it, it is. It's certainly in terms of uh, geographically broad. So glass was exported um, to the British colonies, to North America, um, and and right the way through the, the Caribbean. This, this innovative, expensive lead glass was already in the in the Caribbean, the West, British West Indies, by the end of the, the 1600s. 
So it was certainly um, reaching broad audiences. So how much glass was being made? Can you give us a, a sense of that? And, and who was making it? Well, glass production was initially, lead glass production was initially centered in, in London, in the southeast, but it, it, it grew exponentially within the first few decades as various restrictions on the use of essential ingre- ingredients were, were lifted. Um, I don't have a sense of, I can't tell you quantities um, of glass that were being produced, but it certainly grew throughout the 18th century to make up a, a significant percentage of the national economy. So uh, several hundred thousands of pounds worth of, of income was generated through the glass industry. Now, you had, you referred a moment ago to Venetian glass, um, and of course, there's Bohemian crystal as well. And you know, these are, um, uh, as you say, generally uh, you know, elite and expensive materials um, and elite and expensive objects. What, um, you know, as, as methods changed, as this new formula um, came to prominence, uh, what kind of cultural status did, did glass have as a decorative arts material? Well, glass, although lead crystal was um, stronger, more robust, uh, and it wasn't in itself necessarily prohibitively expensive, it did connote a certain lifestyle. And in order to preserve and use glass, you needed a certain means. You needed somewhere to, to store it safely. You needed to be able to clean it. You needed the food that it was designed to contain, the food and wines. And you needed to be able to support the social contexts for which it was um, designed. So although you could buy a, a set of wine glasses for just a few shillings, which was about the weekly salary of a, uh, a glass worker, um, in fact, they required a, a much more significant income to support their use and, and care. So glass, glass remained a, a fairly um, elite material throughout the 18th century. And I think mm-hmm. one, in, one interesting comparison that I um, happened upon was uh, Christmas reading Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, which I've read every year by tradition for, for, for years now. But I was particularly st- struck by uh, Dickens' description of the Cratchits' Christmas uh, lunch. So Bob Cratchit was a, a clerk working for Ebenezer Scrooge uh, in the city of, in London. Um, this was written in the 1840s. So he was literate and, and professional and supported a family in a small house in London. So Dickens describes Bob Cratchit's Christmas dinner um, and refers to the family display of glass, which comprised um, a custard cup without a handle and a tumbler. So even for a a modest professional family, uh, glassware was still considered prestigious. And you you mentioned um, transportation um, and, you know, import, export. What um, you know, this is an age of of global trade. There are increasing, um, you know, there's increasing fluidity of of economic exchange both uh, within and and outside of Europe. Um, how, how does glass fit into this uh, this sort of picture of global trade in the 18th century? Well, tableware, as I, I mentioned, was um, enjoyed a significant markets in, in British in British colonies. So it was exported to North America, the West Indies, which were the most profitable of all. Uh, the North American colonies, and also into to, to India. Um, but it was also transported and traded in other forms besides vessels, so plate glass um, and lenses as well in, in, within scientific instruments were also transported and used as diplomatic gifts, particularly in the Far East. Now, we ha- we've picked a, 
a curious object to to focus in on today. Um, but before we get to that particular object, can you give me just a, a brief overview of the, the scope of the exhibition? What types of objects are you including and, and what um, overall story are, are you trying to tell with it? In Spotting Company is really a, a, a fairly broad and somewhat critical survey of glass and its meanings in Britain and the 18th century British world, let's call it. Um, it it um, showcases the innovations of glass, so lead glass productions we've just discussed, plate glass too, but it also um, includes glass as a witness to certain events in the 18th century, showing how much, sh- showing how um, fully it permeated um, British life and embodied the sense of British modernity. So we consider the ways in which the words polished and polite were used interchangeably um, in terms of behaviour and, and etiquette and civility, ideals of civility, and how um, glass became something of a metaphor for the polite person, the modern individual. Um, and we also consider the ways in which it bore witness to trade and to empire, to the economies of slavery, um, and, and, and the, social, the social life of the 18th century and how all these, these factors and facets intertwine around around the material of glass. All right, excellent. So let's dive into our curious object then. And what we're focusing on today is actually it's a piece of art um, painted onto a piece of glass. Um, and we'll get to what that means in a minute. Uh, but the, the painting was actually not done in, in Britain, but in Canton. Um, so let's, could you just start by describing the piece and, and tell us how, how big is it and, and what scene is depicted on it? Yes, so this is um, a plate of glass, as you say. It is um, set into a gilt wooden frame and it measures um, 38 centimetres in height by 54 centimetres in width. And it is reverse painted with um, a watery scene. We're looking out across an expanse of water to a quayside in the middle ground. And the quayside is set out uh, horizontally with a row of two-storey buildings in a European style. And between us and the buildings in this expanse of water are a series of um, small ships. And, and what date can you ascribe to it? We can be fairly specific about the date and say it is 1784, 1785. Um, so tell me, just because uh, there, there's an interesting story here, um, you know, there, there's not a date written on it. Mm. Uh, how, how are you able to, to get that specific? Well, this um, scene represents the, the European or the foreign uh, hongs or warehouses at Canton, uh, which is the, the southern, a southern trading port in, in China on the Pearl River. And after 1757, it was the only port in China through which um, European East India trading companies were allowed to do business. And these various companies, which were often national monopolies, um, rented buildings on the quayside, which is where they stored goods, uh, did business, traded with the Chinese Merchant Guild, uh, and had kept their accommodations. And as a result, they um, flew their national flags above these buildings. They were raised and lowered every every day that the, the supercargo or the lead merchant was in residence. So by the sequence of the flags, we can um, identify the year in which the year that this uh, painting represents. I think that's totally fascinating. Um, but t- t- tell me about um, life in, in Canton in, in the 1780s. Um, 
I mean, what um, what sort of level of de- development are we talking about? Uh, levels of economic activity. What was the relationship with the the British? Well, Canton was uh, selected by the Chinese um, as the the principal and then the sole port of official trade with Europeans. The Chinese were very keen to restrict European access to the mainland and interaction with with uh, the Chinese populace. Um, and so all the trading companies were required to um, moor their ships at Wampo, which is an island about 15 miles downriver from Canton. And then they would be transported upriver in Chinese boats to these Hongs, where the most senior merchants would disembark um, along with their, their merchandise for sale. And this, um, well, the, the voyage to Canton from Britain uh, could take up to six months. Um, usually ships would stop uh, in India and Bombay, possibly on the, on the way round. Um, so they would arrive between August and September, having set out at the beginning of the year. And unloading and reloading the ships would take several months on top of that. So it's three or four months before the return voyage. So it was an incredibly um, busy season because the European ships tended to arrive together. There could be up to 4,000 um, uh, European mariners Uh, in Canton uh, during any one season. Slowly, by the end of the 18th century, the season uh, became a a year-round event as new routes were were discovered to Canton. But it was a very concentrated space, but Westerners were not allowed outside the walls of Canton. Um, And Chinese merchants were selected, they were officially nominated to to do business with uh, East India trading companies. But a lot of um, outside merchants came in to trade informally in China and silks and so forth. But the principal trade tea uh, was done uh, very, very uh, officially. Mm, I see. And, and as you look at the scene depicted on uh, on this piece of glass, um, what, what does it specifically tell you or, or reveal um, about what's happening in, in Canton between these British merchants and, and Chinese merchants and, uh, and others? Well, it looks... Um, it looks like a rather uh, a benign scene. We see um, the Chinese ships in, in the foreground. We see orderly Western-style buildings uh, along the quayside. The various companies um, embellished and extended their buildings over the years, creating sort of classical arcades and, and, and verandas and, and so on. And we see the, the Danish, the French, the Imperial sort of Habsburg, the Austrian flag, the Swedish, the British, and the Dutch flags uh, flying from, from left to right. Um, what it doesn't show is that the business of trade and, and what exactly is being traded uh, in these warehouses or, or hongs. And that, I think, is where the story gets uh, particularly interesting. Well, tell, tell me about that. What are we not seeing in this, uh, in this picture that uh, would be particularly interesting to understand? Well, we're not seeing the, um, the, the increasingly nefarious trade between the um, the Europeans and the Chinese in, in opium. And the British really led the way in this, um, supported later by the Americans who, who, who launched their own East India Trading Company in 1784. Um, so in 1757, the, Brit- the British East India Company took control of Bengal um, and they really kind of extinguished the, the cotton industry there and replaced it with an opium um, plantation system. And this opium was exported um, in increasing quantities from India to China by the East India Company, where it was sold illicitly. 
Um, and this generated a, a sort of an opium crisis in China, which compelled the Chinese to, to, to purchase unofficially, illegally, opium from the British using, uh, buying it in silver, which the British then used to purchase tea. And this was really a way to, to circumvent the requirement of the Chinese or the preference of the Chinese for, for silver, for trading in silver. They had very comparatively little interest in imported um, European manufactured goods. Um, and silver was their, their, their prime currency of trade. And the British, of course, didn't much care to part with their silver on these terms. So opium was introduced to the equation. Um, but also this painting itself um, demonstrates that, that glass too was being exported uh, to China in increasing quantities. Um, plate glass wasn't um, uh, produced in, in China um, until the 18th century, until the, the period of European interaction, when the skills of, of glass blowing and plate glass making were, were introduced. And the Chinese had a great interest um, in, in mirrors and in plate glass for windows. And I think by the early decades of the, the 19th century, some 100 tons um, of plate glass were being exported by, by the British. We'll be back with Kip Maxwell in just a moment. First, just a reminder that you can find images of this reverse glass painting at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast or on my Instagram at Objective Interest. If you have comments or suggestions for future episodes, please email me at curiousobjectspodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support Curious Objects, I'd be really grateful if you take a minute right now to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Thanks so much. This is a fascinating um, uh, aspect of the story to me, because what we're talking about with this painting is, you know, it's not a piece that was made in one place. It's a piece that was made um, in two places. That is, the glass manufactured in uh, Britain, the painting applied uh, in China, and then the piece actually made for a British audience. So it goes halfway around the world, gets painted, and then gets sent halfway back around the world the other direction. Um, and you've just described how long uh, that, that journey was, um, you know, via India, around the Cape of, uh, of Good Hope. Um, you know, th this is no casual endeavor. So, you know, really, we're, we're talking about a great deal of, of effort and expense going into the production uh, uh, of this work. And yet, um, you, you've told me that these works were actually produced in, in significant quantities. Is that right? Yes, there's a, this is a subject of um, increasing scholarly attention at the moment. But these harbour scenes were, were, were popular and they exist in, in numerous versions reflecting the, the state of the, 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 the occupancy of the, the Hongs at various points throughout the um, second half of the 18th and early 19th centuries. So they were popular among, um, among mariners as, as souvenirs, one can assume. Um, but they also appear on porcelain. These views also appear on porcelain and, in fact, in one instance, on wallpaper too. But, but you're right, it is an, it's an incredible oceanic footprint. Um, but glass had, this sort of glass had great advantages um, when it came to long-distance transportation. It could be stored easily uh, in a ship once framed. It was even more secure. It didn't 
uh, react to the, the damp or the humidity of either the, the climate in Canton or uh, in the hull of the ship. Um, and the, the Chinese developed special um, backing, special uh, device that surrounded the frame on the inside, a kind of spacer, which allowed the wood of the frame to expand and contract without putting pressure um, onto the glass. So mm. it was really quite ingenious. Yeah, very clever. And and so the the, the method here, um, what we've referred to as reverse painting, involves uh, creating a picture by painting on one side of the glass and then looking at it from the other side of the glass. Now, uh, where did that method um, originate and, and how did it proliferate uh, in, in Canton? The, the technique of reverse painting on glass is really an, an ancient one. It, it can be dated back to, to, to the Roman Empire. Um, and as you say, it involves, it really is uh, painting in reverse in every sense. You, you apply the paint on the reverse side of, of the glass, the opposite side from which you view it. And you, by then by definition, have to begin with the highlights of the painting and then work backwards uh, into, into the background. And it really enjoyed uh, popularity throughout Europe. Um, but the Chinese had a very strong uh, tradition of graphic arts, porcelain painting, ink painting, and so on, and developed a, a thriving export trade in porcelain painting and uh, oil painting as well, which was an imported European technique as well as this reverse painting on glass. And already by the 1740s, we, we have reports from Jesuit missionaries who were um, stationed at the imperial court in Beijing, describing how they were learning the techniques of um, glass painting from Chinese artists. And so you say uh, by the, the mid to late 18th century, large quantities of plate glass were being imported to China. Now, some of this, as with the picture we're talking about now, was intended um, for Chinese uh, artists to work on and then send back for, for British consumption. Um, was other glass meant for consumption in the Chinese domestic market? The evidence suggests increasingly that there was an emerging interest in reverse painted glass in China at this time, certainly by the 19th century, it, it had become um, absorbed into uh, Chinese uh, folk traditional culture. Um, but it seems that although the, the hub of the, the reverse painting was undertaken in, in Canton, uh, or the hub of reverse painting was in the, the harbour town of Canton, there was certainly a demand for it at the imperial court. And we can assume, therefore, the higher levels of Chinese society at that time. So there's no signature um, uh, on this picture. Um, but what do we know about the, uh, the sort of artist who might have made this painting? Um, you know, wh where were they working? Uh, was it in a shop? Um, would they have been an independent craftsman or someone you know, working as part of a, uh, a larger operation? Um, what do we know about the, the actual production? Well, very, you're right, very few um, Chinese glass painters are known. There are some, um, but this, this piece isn't uh, attributed. And these, these painters would have had studios in, in Canton and would have been visited by the supercargoes, probably on an individual private basis. Um, supercargoes were, these are the supercargoes were the, the senior merchants aboard the, the vessels. They weren't sailors, they were uh, East India Company officials who undertook the, the business of, of, of the company in Canton. And they were, as part of their uh, 
um, perks, they were given a certain allowance of private trade. So that enabled them to mm. purchase things like porcelain or wallpaper or reverse painted pictures to bring back and, and sell commercially for their own profit. Um, so these sorts of paintings would have been commissioned on a private uh, basis. Um, and, and, and so how many artists do you think were doing this kind of work? I mean, is this a more of a niche industry where a small handful of, of people would have uh, developed the artistic technique um, to do this? Or, or was this more of a widespread uh, trend? Very, I mean, comparatively little is known about the extent of reverse painting uh, in Canton in terms of the number of workshops. It was certainly an established um, industry there in as much as uh, the, the Imperial Court in Beijing recognised that this was the place to to send to for, for um, artists and for examples of reverse painted glass. So it was... Um, certainly more than more than a handful and many of these artists would paint speculatively so this for example was probably not painted to commission but may have been one of several that the artist prepared before the beginning of the season um, in order to have ready for 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 purchase when the europeans arrived um, and they certainly vary in in scale and complexity and and quality and there are smaller versions which depict generic um fashionably clad, fashionably dressed um, European women, um, which probably mm. would have been popular souvenirs um, among the sailors. No, no Western women were allowed into Canton. Um, so it was an exclusively um, male environment in terms of uh, European presence. I see. Well, and so so um, the artist who painted this picture, uh, you're speculating, may have had an idea of a, the sort of scene that um, a British trader would have found appealing. Um, you know, listeners may be familiar with Chinese export porcelain. Um, there, there was by this point in history, um, as, as we've been talking about, this great exchange of, of goods and services um, between China and, and Great Britain. Um, but tell me about this... Uh, uh, I, I'm really trying to dig into the the sort of artistic process. Um, you know, were there pieces that might have been made on commission, on demand for uh, British traders? Were, would those have been significantly more expensive? Were were, the, were pieces like this one produced in in multiples? I mean, would the same scene have been painted by the same artist uh, a dozen different times and sold to a dozen different merchants? Um, I mean, how how sort of bespoke um, was the artistic process, if you will? Well, that really depended on on your budget. One assumes there are certainly um, portraits of identifiable um, East India Company officials, um, which were certainly commissioned, were therefore certainly um, bespoke. Um, but then there are these more generic views, um, which were probably produced in advance, and there were certainly like the the, the the portraits of of the European women, these were stock um, that I imagine were, were kept rolling, produced throughout the year and, and always available. But the 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 artist of this picture of the, the harbour would have had um, a great interest in selling it in that season because the flags may well change and, and it would be more difficult mm. to sell the following year. So he would have had a particular market 
uh, and I say he, we assume it was a, a male artist um, in Canton. Um, but we assume that the artist would have had a, a market in, in mind and, and directed this to that. When you say you assume it was a male artist, how strong is that assumption? Um, we don't have any reports. Or we don't have any uh, evidence of female uh, artists working in Canton on glass. And I think that would have been culturally um, uh, out of, it would have been uh, culturally egregious um, in, in 18th century China. Okay, let's talk about the um, the British consumer now. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that perhaps the, the sort of a scene, uh, this sort of maritime scene would have uh, appealed to sailors, um, which seems reasonable. Um, but, but other sorts of scenes might have appealed to other sorts of people. Were, were these scenes largely being um, created for the benefit of the merchants and sailors who were in Canton? Or were they also being uh, created for these people to bring back and, and sell to people uh, uh, in the British mainland who might have other interests? Yeah, I think I think a, a bit of both. There is certainly, um, as I say, these, these bespoke portraits that, that speak to a very close um, connection between the patron and, and the artist. But there were different types of scenes that were commissioned in, in, in Canton for Western Market. You have uh, birds and gardens, um, which uh, are commonly applied to, in fact, to mirrors and scenes uh, depicting courtly couples in gardens or auspicious scenes, lakes and golden pheasants and um, scholars' rocks and so on. Um, and these would have probably been sold um, speculatively um, upon arrival in... Well, a large portion of these would probably have been sold speculatively upon arrival in Britain, where there was a, a huge fascination with uh, China, the, the, the notion of um, chinoiserie, which is a 19th century term referred to as the Chinese taste in, in the 18th century, um, was not one of a uh, um, mimicry, but it was one of um, sort of revisionist approaches to chinoiserie suggests that it was one born of great admiration. China was an ancient culture and one that really fascinated um, Europeans as a, as a parallel uh, to the, kind of the, the classical antique um, origins of, of of European civilization as they perceived it. Um, so it was a, um, a, 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 an admiration that was born out of fascination and a degree of respect as well. So how expensive do you think this particular picture might have been and, and, and what sort of, uh, um, you know, what class would have been the likely target um, for, for a piece like that? I think it would certainly have been the the supercargo class. So these would have been the most elite members of the, the East India Company officials traveling um, to Canton. And they would have been the ones who um, disembarked the ship at Wampur and went upriver and lived and worked in the, the Hongs. Um, so this put them really at, at the, kind of the upper middling levels um, of, of mercantile society. And it, the, 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 the values of these pictures um, are certainly variables. The quality of glass, obviously the oceanic footprint, um, the sorts of frames that they're put in. So mirrors, uh, reverse painted mirrors sold in London at auction for 20, 30 pounds a pair. 
and the average um, disposable income of uh, a family at the threshold of the middling classes was £16 per annum. So this is disposable income after the bills and so on and so forth have been paid. Um, so this, these sorts of pictures would have been really quite expensive and not within reach for, for many people. I mean, were th- would, would they go all the way to the top of the socioeconomic ladder? Are these, uh, were, were pictures like this hung uh, in the halls of the great English country houses? Um, or, or are we talking really just about the upper middle class? They certainly made their way into aristocratic and royal residences. Um, we have um, records of reverse painted pictures in the collection of Frederick Prince of Wales in, in the, the mid 18th century. Um, and George IV had a great interest in um, in Chinese export art, although there are no surviving reverse-painted pictures uh, in the royal collection that can corroborate this, but we can mm. certainly imagine that... Well, we know that they are certainly present in the mid-18th century and, and probably remained there through into the, into the 19th. So this picture, um, as you said, is um, uh, dated to 1784 or 85. Um, when did this art form decline? Uh, when did it sort of fall fall out of fashion, or when do you stop seeing ex- examples? Well, this the Chinese reverse painted pictures continued to be produced in Canton really into the early nineteenth century. And it was the Opium Wars and the the, the changing relationship between um, Britain and, and China that really um, changed the um, the system of patronage and the, the basis of trade there. In England, generally, reverse-painted pictures and reverse-painted mirrors and the reception of these Chinese objects um, began to decline really by the early 19th century. Um, Painting on glass had moved into the domestic amateur realm and it wasn't considered as high a form of uh, art as it once had been. So there were various artistic, cultural, political economic factors, I think, that contributed to the, the demise in popularity and really the the, um, the demise in popularity of this, this art form. And it's been overlooked really ever since and, and has been um, written off as sort of folk art or, or somehow um, um, substandard. But the, the, the process of making it is so technically um, demanding and it relied on such um, good quality glass. With to have to, to do a reverse painted picture like this with, on bad quality glass would have resulted in all sorts of warps and distortions, and you would be able to see the air bubbles and so on. So it did, it did require glass of a of a significant uh, quality, which carried expense yeah. too. Well, and I, I hope listeners will take a look at um, at the pictures online. Um, it, it's quite an interesting experience to to look at the picture um you, you know listeners may have seen uh reverse painted glass uh in in other contexts before but if you haven't um it it, it creates a special quality of of color and contrast um and you mentioned to me that um uh th- this color really translates even under dim um, light such as candlelight the, the, the great advantage to reverse painting on glass is that the surface can be cleaned. So in a world of, of candles, 
um, you can easily remove soot and um, any kind of um, wax or any kind of dirt from it without damaging the painting itself. And the colours retain, they don't, they don't fade with exposure to, to daylight. So these paintings are, really retain their original brightness and the, the layer of glass adds a, a, a kind of depth to them, um, which is particularly appropriate and, um, with an aqueous scene like this. It really enhances the, the visual mm. experience. And when the reverse painting is combined with mirrors as well, the viewer can, can see themselves as part of this Far Eastern, this Chinese um, landscape or experience. So it's, they're quite interactive on, in many ways. And you say that, that this form has been largely overlooked. Um, is there much of a, a private market, um, you know, a, a trade in reverse painted uh, glass from uh, 18th century China? There certainly is. Chinese export arts generally are um, subject to considerable scholarly attention at the moment um, from both uh, Asian scholars and, and European both recognise their uniqueness and their importance in in um, the artistic canon. Um, but reverse painting on glass in, in particular has re- enjoyed a resurgence of interest in, in the last few years. There's a great new publication that came out last year by Thierry Audric, um, which was the, the culmination of his, his PhD on Chinese reverse painted pictures. And that was followed shortly by, um, shortly after by a conference in at the Vitre Musée um, in in Romont, Switzerland, and the proceedings of that will be coming out, I think, in 2021, later this year, uh, offering diverse perspectives on, on Chinese reverse painted pictures from, again, from both Asian and European and American scholars. Excellent. Something to look forward to. Absolutely. Um, have, have we missed anything significant uh, about this particular picture? Ah, let me see. Uh, I, I think we covered most of it. Um, I mean, there's so much more to say about glass generally yeah, sure. in China, but... Um, One thing that um, you mentioned in our uh, our call of uh, some weeks ago that caught my attention was you um, talked about the um, in- in- ingredients for the, the lead uh, glass process coming from India. Um, could you... Just tell me a little more about that because it, it really ties into this this idea of a, a truly global trade. Yeah, absolutely. One of the one of the key ingredients to to lead glass manufacture is saltpeter, which is a potassium nitrate, um, and it helps to burn off impurities essentially in in, in the process of glass making. So it's essential for this um, the clear refractive qualities that we we associate with British lead glass. Um, and for a long time, the the saltpeter trade were, um, was a monopoly of the king. Um, this was relaxed in the, the late uh, 17th century, which really enabled the, the burgeoning of the glass industry. It had access to this, this raw ingredient, which incidentally was the key ingredient to gunpowder, which was why it was such a protecting mm. trade. Um, but after 1757, the, the British... Uh, took Bengal and the saltpeter mines in, in Bengal. And by the end of the 18th century, they controlled something like 75% of the global trade in saltpeter. And the East India Company kept huge uh, saltpeter warehouses on the south bank of the Thames, right next to uh, the glass the glass making um, 
the, the glass house, the London glass houses. So the, the two were very much hand in hand. The saltpetre was key both to uh, British glass making, but also to British colonial expansion through, uh, through gunpowder as well. Saltpetre was used in other industries like uh, uh, soap making too, but it was, it was mm. certainly crucial for the glass making industry. And, and the access to these saltpetre mines in Bengal uh, was, was, was crucial to its success. All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been a, a fascinating um, little peek into the exhibition, and I, I wish you the, the best of luck with, uh, with that opening. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. That's our show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next episode with a look at a series of dolls made as part of the Works Progress Administration. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Tribe Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. 